This spring, if you'd rather spend time enjoying your lawn instead of trying to keep it alive, there's good news. True Green is the easiest and most affordable way to get a beautiful lawn. All you have to do is water and mow, and they'll do the rest. Weed control, fertilization, aeration, and even some things you might not even think of. They'll do all of it, while you can do literally anything else. With True Green, you could have your lawn looking as good as a putting green. That's not hyperbole. True Green is the official lawn care treatment provider of the PGA Tour. True Green offers a satisfaction guarantee, and they have a verified best price promise, which guarantees you the lowest price with no compromise on quality. You do you. Let True Green do your lawn care. Visit TrueGreen.com to get the best lawn at the best price with the best people guaranteed. This episode is brought in part to you by Audible, your go-to destination for thrilling audio entertainment. Whether you're looking for a hair-raising experience to enjoy while you're on the move or eager to dive into sinister and shocking tales, Audible has an exclusive collection of thrillers from best-selling authors that will keep you on the edge of your seat. Like James Patterson's first audio-only thriller, The Coldest Case. Experience stories like never before, where every chilling detail is brought to life by captivating sound design. Plus, as an Audible member, choose one title a month to make yours forever. And now, new members can try Audible free for 30 days. Just visit audible.com slash WonderyPod or text WonderyPod to 500-500. That's audible.com slash WonderyPod or text WonderyPod to 500-500. Looking to instantly upgrade your Mother's Day gift from typical to meaningful? Shop Etsy. Get up to 30% off well-crafted and personalized gifts from participating shops until May 12th. This year, embrace your creative side. You know, the side your mom gave you? And shop Etsy for custom jewelry, style pieces, home decor, and extra special items she'll adore. Need something original and affordable for Mother's Day? Etsy has it. Shop until May 12th for up to 30% off gifts for mom. Terms apply. I'm Jane Pauley, and this is Sunday Morning. Imagine that one in seven people around the world suffered from a particular kind of chronic pain. Imagine further that the medical establishment didn't fully research treatments or cures. That's exactly what sufferers from migraines say they're up against, as Susan Spencer will report in our cover story. The first thing I feel is pressure in my temples. Here's a staggering statistic. About one in seven people in the world suffers from migraine attacks. I think when people hear the word migraine, they think a really, really bad headache. It's a headache, and it's usually really bad, but it also has light sensitivity, nausea, sound sensitivity, and a host of other symptoms. More than just a headache ahead on Sunday morning. Actor Harrison Ford is a Hollywood legend, much to his own astonishment, as he'll be telling our Lee Cowan. That's all, that's, that was Harrison Ford is about to say something that people. might surprise you. But I never thought that I was a movie star type. 
And in that, perhaps, is the very secret of his success. I never actually thought about being successful. Harrison Ford, later on Sunday morning. Love is still in the air this Valentine's weekend. Reason enough for Nancy Giles to check in with two musical authorities. I'm all out of love. I'm so lost without you. Romance is in the air. Is it possible to write a song without the word love in it? I do write a lot of songs without love in there, strangely enough. <laughs> but sometimes it creeps back in. The feel-good story of Air Supply, ahead on Sunday morning. And more, all coming up when our Sunday morning podcast continues. One in seven people suffers from migraine, a pain so severe it's hard to put into words. Our cover story is from Susan Spencer. Rama's paintings are bright. Oh my goodness. Often arresting. Wow. <laughs> the colors are so brilliant. Cute. But the source of those intense colors is intense pain. The first thing I feel is pressure in my temples. Almost like my head is getting squeezed in. Priya has suffered chronic migraine attacks most of her life. Five years ago, the Cincinnati artist began trying to paint them. How do you paint a migraine? When I close my eyes, I feel this imagery kind of, it starts somewhere on the top and it sort of floats down. And it's a symphony of colors. But don't be fooled by that peaceful description. So are you painting in the middle of the migraine? Depends how functional I am and how painful it is. So sometimes you paint during the migraine. Yes. Sometimes it's overwhelming and you paint what you remember. Yes. I love all your work. Thank you. At its most overwhelming, Priya has endured 25 attacks in a single month. The headache is the dominant symptom. It is so debilitating that it crushes you and you're unable to process or think or do anything at all. And then it affects my vision also. Sometimes it gets blurry, my vision. It affects your stomach. How does anybody live with this? What choice do you have, you know? So here's my Zomic spray. She never leaves home without a purse full of medication. It doesn't stop the pain, but can reduce the severity and duration of the attack. So would you give yourself an injection? In, yes. In, like, the grocery store? Or what? I've done that. I've gone to the restroom and given myself an injection. I think when people hear the word migraine, they think a really, really bad headache. How accurate is that? It's pretty inaccurate. It's a headache, and it's usually really bad, but it also has light sensitivity, nausea, sound sensitivity, smell sensitivity, brain fog, dizziness, and a host of other symptoms that are often attached to it. Though the cause is unclear, migraine is a serious neurological disease that often runs in families, says Dr. William Young, a neurologist and headache specialist at Thomas Jefferson University Hospital in Philadelphia. And this can last for how long? Well, I have patients who never get rid of their migraine. Come on. 
every single day and every moment of every day. Fortunately, that's rare. The disease, unfortunately, is not. About 40 million Americans have uh, migraine, a billion people in the world. A billion people? A billion people in the world. That's about one in seven living with what's ranked as the second most debilitating disease on the planet, right after back pain. Just how debilitating? Well, watch what happened to this TV reporter in 2011. Well, a very, very heavy, uh, heavy divertation tonight. We had a very Darison bite. Let's go ahead, Tarison, those for the bit, the head, the pit. Everybody was sure that she had had a major stroke. It almost seems like she's speaking in tongues. Exactly, yes. And that's migraine. The most common place is in the vision part of the brain. But in her case, it was in the language part of the brain. In the past couple of months, it's just gotten worse. A new class of drugs can reduce the number of attacks. And handheld electrical devices to block pain can help some patients. But there is no cure and often no real diagnosis. Typically, you can't see a migraine on a brain scan. Migraine is still a radically undertreated disorder. We met medical historian Catherine Foxhall in a New York City bookstore. Her recent book traces the history of the disease. So when is the first recorded instance of someone having a migraine? Migraine is a disease that we can really trace back for thousands of years. Over the centuries, she says, it's been treated with everything from wrapping the patient's head with ground-up earthworms to bloodletting. As for why we're not much better at treating it today? One of the problems we have at the moment with migraine is really that it's not taken that seriously. Foxhall thinks that's largely because migraine affects three times as many women as men. It's often seen as an excuse. It's seen as a disorder of women, of, you know, women who can't really cope with modern life or, you know, who are too stressed. If this were men, we wouldn't be in the same situation. There is no way that the second most disabling disease in the world would get this little attention if it was happening to men principally. Dr. Young heads up Miles for Migraine, which hosts running events. Don't let anybody ever say that it's just a headache. Aimed at raising awareness. If society tells you it's not valid to have migraine headache, that you shouldn't be disabled, that it's there because you're weak, you are not going to be a good advocate for yourself when it comes to getting treatment. Even though it's that common, people are uncomfortable admitting it. Right, so they hide it, they don't seek help, they don't talk about it because they know how little sympathy they're going to get if they say, you know, they need to miss work. That stigma, he says, has a dramatic effect on research. The National Institutes of Health budget for arthritis, for example, is about 10 times that for migraine, though the two have a comparable impact on society. If migraine was treated fairly by NIH, it would get $240 million worth of research. It gets about 20. We obviously have limited funds, and so we have to be really careful how we spread them across the the different diseases that we're responsible for. Linda Porter is an NIH director in the National Institute of Neurological Disorders and Stroke. She says funding for migraine research is on the rise. It's a slow process, so we've gone 
in 2015 from about $22 million a year commitment. And now we're, we're getting up into the high 30s over a small number of years. Is that uh, satisfactory as far as you're concerned? You know, if, you know, the minimum wage goes from $6 to $6.5, no, it's not satisfactory. You know, it's shamefully poor. Do you feel like this is getting enough attention? I feel like it's getting enough attention. I think there's a need for more funding in the area because there are some critical gaps. Gaps she blames in part on a shortage of migraine researchers and the difficulty of treating people whose symptoms vary so widely. So headaches don't affect people all the same way. So this is hard. It is hard. It's not an easy equation of how do I treat this patient to make them feel better because it's not a one-size-fits-all. Small comfort to people like Priya Rama. She says the impact of migraine on her life is so great she'd even give up painting if it also meant giving up pain. If I told you that tomorrow there's a cure, you know, you take this little pill once a month and you'll never have another migraine. I would do it. Am I going to stop seeing these visions and not have anything to paint? Maybe. But if I can not deal with the pain at all, I would certainly take that. And now a page from our Sunday morning almanac. February 16th, 1905, 115 years ago today. The day America's first Esperanto club was founded in Boston. Polish physician L.L. Zamenhof created the new and simple language a few years before, an attempt at a universal language that would help bring the world's people together. Though that hasn't quite happened, Esperanto isn't entirely unheard. The year 1966 saw future Star Trek star William Shatner boldly go where few had gone before in Incubus, a low-budget film spoken entirely in Esperanto. Today, the Internet offers many Esperanto covers of some familiar songs, including David Bowie's hit, Space Oddity. And the group Esperanto USA says more than a million people have taken an online Esperanto course since its launch five years ago. The dream lives on. Love is in the air whenever the duo known as Air Supply performs, as Nancy Giles reminds us. In the 80s, Cupid had some serious competition. Like an arrow through the heart, Air Supply hit its target with love songs. And believe me, nothing but love songs. The formula worked for the Australian duo back then, and it still does today. Good evening, ladies and gentlemen. 
We caught up with the band at a sold-out show in Tarrytown, New York. Critics may scoff, but hey, what's so bad about feeling good? What does it mean for you after 45 years to know how much your music affects people? Well, for me, it's still overwhelming when I mean, we even get to do this. <laughs> it just is to sing a song in concert and look at somebody and see their reaction. Tears or joy or kissing each other. Graham Russell, he plays the guitar, and Russell Hitchcock have been perfecting their pop ballad blend for decades. A big part of their success is a mutual appreciation. Legend has it that in all these years you guys have never had a falling out? We haven't, no, never. I find that hard to believe. It is hard. (laughs) Well, we just haven't, have we? Within the band, we have two separate roles. I'm not a lead singer, and I've always known that. I just want to write songs, so it's a perfect relationship. I've tried to get Russell to write songs, but he he says, no, I can't write songs. You can't, why? Because I can't write songs. (laughs) Either you can or you can't. What Hitchcock can do is sing. Even at 70, he's a year older than Graham, he still hits those high notes. The same notes that help sell tens of millions of albums. Admit it, you know the songs. The one that you love. All out of love. Lost in love. See a pattern? Is it possible to write a song without the word love in it? I try very hard now. <laughs> I'm not saying it's a bad thing. It's a beautiful thing. It I'm is. just curious. Yeah. I do write a lot of songs without love in now, strangely enough. <laughs> but sometimes it creeps back in. The guys are constantly on the road. You still do like over 100 shows a year? Is that right? I think it's about 130, but who's counting? The days can blur. But there's one date they will never forget. We met uh, in a production of Jesus Christ Superstar in Australia on May the 12th, 1975. You know the exact date? Absolutely, yeah. It was only a short time after, maybe a couple of weeks, that we started to work together on some of Graham's original songs, and we thought we sounded pretty good. That was the basis of our relationship musically and personally. His voice just knocked me out, and it just cut through everyone like a knife. Close your eyes, I want to see you tonight in my sweet dreams. Since you guys met doing Jesus Christ Superstar, I guess it's okay to say that Jesus brought you together. Jesus brought us together. It's amazing. Thank you, Jesus. From fate to Air Supply's faithful followers who have a special place in the band's heart. Well, we call them airheads, the fans, <laughs> and they're, they're very appreciative of that because they know it's not a demeaning thing. But I heard about one particular fan that really sort of surprised you. I got a tattoo in a very famous shop in Sunset Strip many years ago. Uh-huh. I came out of this shop and there were four bikers blocking my path, you know, <laughs> and I thought I'm going to die here today. <laughs> one of the guys said, are you, you the guy with Air Supply? I said, yeah, and he said, would you mind signing this autograph? My wife and I are big fans of yours, so. So I thought that was... Isn't that sweet? That is so sweet. <laughs> and I went like that. <laughs> Bikers love him. Oh. <laughs> and for those who label air supply troubadours of mellow or soft rock, get ready for a surprise. We're a rock and roll band. You know, I, I get fed up with people saying it's mushy. There's nothing wrong with being romantic. No, I know. But, but it's romantic rock. It is, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Live, it's serious. No matter the label, Air Supply has been making people happy for 45 years. And judging by the crowd here, 
There's nothing wrong with that. Everybody's saying our music's really romantic, but it wasn't by design. I think it was just a reflection of who we were and who we are. It is like the soundtrack of so many people's lives, weddings, intimate moments. You've probably created a little population explosion, let's be honest. Probably, yeah. That's been, that's you know. been alleged. It's more than alleged. <laughs> With Valentine's Day behind us, is it too late for chocolate? Not for our Faith Saley. Back when I was a kid, we had three kinds of chocolate, milk, dark, and white. And if you're about to tell me that white chocolate isn't really chocolate because it doesn't contain cocoa solids, you are right. And you're also probably the person I need to talk to right now. Because chocolate, sweet chocolate, has gotten way too gentrified and stratified. I cannot keep up with the levels of chocolate. There's 38% cacao, 62%, 70%, 82.5. You need to be a math major to keep up. It's like one of those 23andMe DNA tests, but with chocolate. Oh, what percentage are you? I discovered I'm 72% cacao. Someone recently informed me she eats only 100%, as if she were daring me to go to the dark side. 100% is 100% wrong. That's called baking chocolate. That's called punishment. Those of us who like the occasional 11% Hershey's, we will not be percentage shamed. We will not play identity politics with the shade of our bar or be judged by the chocolate company we keep. And if the cacao arms race isn't enough to make you, well, bitter, let's consider what innocent chocolate has become infused and sprinkled with these days. Pink Himalayan sea salt is the least of it. It's hard to find a bar of chocolate that doesn't contain turmeric or porcini mushrooms, even Pop Rocks. I mean, I'm not going to turn it down, but that kind of gilding the chocolate lily is so unnecessary, like putting makeup in sequins on a perfect little child. Look, I'll eat all kinds. You know when chocolate is past its prime, how it gets whitish? That's called a bloom. I'll take your bloom and chocolate. Remember Sam I Am who will not eat green eggs and ham? I'm that dude's opposite when it comes to chocolate. I will eat it milk dark white. I will eat it day and night. Under 100%, I'll take a bite. We don't need bacon, cumin, and all that. Just give us cacao, sugar, and some fat. Here's the bittersweet truth. Sometimes we don't need to take it to the next level. Message delivered with a kiss. From cabaret to movie to Broadway show, no two words evoke the naughty side of Paris, quite like Moulin Rouge. Alina Cho takes us to where it all began. If you're lucky enough to have visited Paris, maybe you've walked by it and marveled at the red windmill. But have you ever been inside the Moulin Rouge? The famous Paris Cabaret is the same age as the fabled Eiffel Tower. Both opened 130 years ago. And at that time, it was the first building uh, with electricity when it first opened. Fanny Rabas, who's been at the Moulin Rouge for a quarter century, is our guide. It's really quite something when you yes, look Yes, and I like the warm atmosphere, you know, the red, and you know the little red lamps, they are made only for us. The Red Mill, that's the English translation for Moulin Rouge, sits in Montmartre, a section of Paris that was filled with windmills. A few still stand today. 
So it was a way to pay tribute to these uh, windmills of Montmartre. And do you know why uh, it was painted in red? No, because that was my next question. Yes, because they wanted it to, see, to be seen from everywhere. didn't hurt that Joseph Aller and Charles Zidler, the two businessmen behind the Moulin Rouge, also put on an eye-popping show. Why here? Why the Moulin Rouge? Because here was the, the party. Here were the girls. Here was the music. Here was the freedom. And here all the classes were mixed together. There were the bourgeois, there were the aristocrats, there were the laundry girls, there were everybody. Author Francesco Rappazzini says the Moulin Rouge attracted greats like Ernest Hemingway, Pablo Picasso, and Henri de Toulouse-Lautrec, the diminutive painter who came to the cabaret almost every night. He lived not far from here, and he loved to be between the women, but he was a dwarf, and women escaped from him, and here he could be in the middle of them and see them dance and laugh and drink, and he loved to drink a lot, too. Toulouse-Lautrec was behind the now-familiar posters for the Moulin Rouge, and the originals still hang here. He painted dancers like Jane Avril, the inspiration behind Nicole Kidman's character in Baz Luhrmann's movie version. And the Moulin Rouge has even come to New York in a hit Broadway musical set to modern-day pop songs. The Moulin Rouge is a state of mind. This is not the real Moulin Rouge. This is the Moulin Rouge of the imagination, which is based... Even so, the Tony Award-winning set designer Derek McLean visited the real Moulin Rouge to help him visualize the stage version. You know, I really wanted it to feel like this is the club, that you're transported to another world. So McLean transformed almost every inch of the Al Hirschfeld Theater from boring beige... To raging red. In John Logan's script, he describes this club very simply. He says the club, sex and smoke. <laughs> Today, the smoke is gone, but the Paris show is sexier than ever. 60 women and men perform twice a night, 365 days a year. What are you looking for? I'm looking for very good dancers, good classical training. A good Janet Farrow, a former dancer That's herself, very, very is an artistic director. The girls also need to be tall. At least 5'8". At eight. least 5'8", but really, these days, you're looking at more than 5'10". Wow. I'm going to 6 foot. And the can-can doesn't come cheap. Each elaborate handmade costume can cost $50,000. How hard is it to learn the routines? Mm -hmm. Some of the routines are very difficult. Australians Amanda Chapman and Jessica Evans are longtime dancers. The can-can is the hardest, I think. Having the stamina to get from the beginning to the end, because yeah. it's just so difficult. Yeah. And revealing. Most of the 90-minute show is performed topless. 
there are people who are going to watch this and say, do we need to see so many nude girls dancing on stage? Isn't it demeaning? The uh, 2,000 people watching the show tonight don't seem to think that, do they? And the girls don't think it. They're not forced to be here or do anything. They've come because they want to do it. We can do this and be so proud of our bodies and mm -hmm. doing it in an artistic way, in a beautiful way. It's completely normal and it's okay. They're earning enough money to be totally independent at the age of 18. They are totally independent. They are reliant on no man. After 130 years, there is still something romantic about the Moulin Rouge. So much so, marriage proposals are common. But not all have a Hollywood ending. In the past, we used to agree that people can ask and do their proposal on the stage of the Moulin Rouge after the show, of course. But one evening, there was a guy from America. Uh, he took the microphone and he asked his girlfriend, do you want to marry me? And in front of 900 people, she said no. So from now on, we decided that there won't be any more proposal on stage. Now you can come and do your proposal at your table in a more intimate way, but that's it. <laughs> We really need new phones. T-Mobile will cover the cost of four amazing new iPhone 15s. And each line is only $25 a month. New iPhone 15s? It's better over here. Only at T-Mobile get four iPhone 15s on us and four lines for $25 per line per month with eligible trade-in when you switch. Minimum of four lines for $25 per line per month with auto-pay discount using debit or bank account. $5 more per line without auto-pay, plus taxes and fees. Phone fee at 24 monthly bill credits for all well qualified customers. Contact us before canceling accounts to continue bill credits or credit stop and balance on required finance agreement due. $35 per line connection charge applies. See T-Mobile.com. A change of heart, a different sort of love story from our Steve Hartman. Last week, 45-year-old Corey Cunningham was rushed to Houston Methodist Hospital, the first patient ever brought here to have his bachelor status removed. Corey has an incurable brain tumor. He's on home hospice, but the good doctors and nurses at Houston Methodist brought him back to the chapel and arranged all this just so Corey could cross off the only thing on his bucket list, get married. Taisha Evans is his bride. That was the one thing he wanted to do before he died. <laughs> Taisha and Corey dated seven years, and although he knew he wanted to marry her from the moment they met, she turned down his proposal nearly a dozen times. Because his job was more important. Corey worked in oil and gas, traveled the world, and made good money. Money was everything to Corey. But not to her. Hi, Taisha. Taisha always said she would never marry a guy who was never around. And my husband. So, what changed? Happened to her? It's not what you think. Taisha says pity played no part in her change of heart. She says Corey still had to prove he was the man of her dreams. Fortunately, one of the few blessings of a terminal illness is to understand what true love takes. Everything about him is just completely different. When you walk in the room, you could feel it. The first step in his transformation? Acknowledging he'd been a fool. Yes, because I could have been spending more time with her. The second step? Making up for all that lost time. Was it a sense of relief when you finally got married? <laughs> <laughs> what are you laughing at? 
I feel like I'm luckiest man alive. This Valentine's weekend, a lot of guys and girls celebrated with fine food and even finer jewelry. But not these newlyweds. From this day forward, for worse, for poor, and in sickness, Corey and Taisha will honor the harshest demands of their wedding vows. Because they know those are the only parts of the promise that guarantee you a happily ever after. <laughs> He's a movie legend, Harrison Ford by name, veteran of countless roles who can't quite resist the call to take on yet another, which leaves our Lee Cowan just a bit starstruck. Here's the thing about meeting Harrison uh, Ford. You've had horses for a long time now. Yeah, you? yeah. And still do? Do you still ride? Yeah. Your small talk becomes pretty pathetic because your life is flashing before your eyes. Hey, man, I'm sorry if I scared you. One memorable movie moment. On Solo. After another. I'm Rachel. Deckard. It's not just that Ford embodied some of the most enduring characters ever put on film. And not just once, but a few times. Chewing. We're home. It's that after more than 40 years of doing it... Uh, how do I look? I mean, do I look uh, Amish? Get off my plane. Ford remains unstoppable. He just wants to keep making movies, whether he gets top billing or not. Look, I've enjoyed every job I've ever had because uh, I love the work. But I don't have to be a leading man anymore. Yeah. When you return to roles, whether it's Han Solo or Indiana Jones, what's the what's the challenge for you in coming back to the the same role years later? I'm trying not to look silly, you know, and running around in tight pants and high boots. And <laughs> I'll give you a more uh, appropriate answer, considering that I'm going to start doing Indiana Jones in about two months. Yeah. You know, when we have the opportunity to make another is because people have enjoyed them. I feel obliged to, to make sure that our efforts are as ambitious as they were um, when we started. Can you tell us anything about the new Indiana Jones? Uh, no. <laughs> what he can tell us about is his latest role. Hey, Watch yourself. In one of the best tales about man's best friend ever written, Jack London's The Call of the Wild. Wild places. We could go. You and me. The challenge for Ford was that his co-star, Buck, wasn't real. He's computer-generated. A former Cirque du Soleil performer, Terry Notary, was actually the dog's human stand-in. He gave me someone to establish an emotional relationship with. Because you have to have that, right? You, just you have to have, have something to work off of. I mean, it's a little strange. I'm rolling around on the floor with this guy and <laughs> scratching his tummy. And <laughs> were you, you physically were doing that with him? Because you had to, I guess, right? There was money involved. <laughs> just like for many of us, The Call of the Wild was required reading for Ford in high school. 
Jack London first published his naturalist work back in 1903. And of all the lessons it offers, one in particular hit pretty close to home. We come and go, don't we? This is always here. We're, uh, we're in danger of losing the support of nature for our lives, for our economies, for our societies. Because nature doesn't need people. Yeah. People need nature. While he's quietly campaigned for a myriad of causes since the early 90s, when the U.S. pulled out of the Paris Climate Accord, that brought him to the front lines. He spent a lot of time working with, uh, with big business on trying to get their focus. Yes, businesses, NGOs, municipalities, state governments have all stepped into the gap. I'm now seeing that I think we're coming close to being able to really commit the resources and energy to confronting the issue uh, because it's taken up on the highest level of politics. It's taken up on the streets by young people. This is a bottom line issue. Yeah, this is it. This is it. That's the cup of a carpenter. He often brings his passions into his films. While he may not be an archaeologist, Ford is a first-rate carpenter in real life. Or at least he used to be. But do you still get a chance to, to do much anymore? Uh, I, I, every once in a while I sharpen my tools. <laughs> <laughs> but I just don't find enough of a block of time to get back my chops. Your dad also had a shop, right? My dad had a shop, but I was there when he cut the end of it, cut his finger off, uh, cutting a piece of plywood on a table saw. So he, <laughs> maybe not the best person to learn. Well, from. maybe, maybe having seen that, look, hey, look, <laughs> they're all still there. Thanks, Dad. <laughs> he likes process, whether it's building a cabinet or flying airplanes. That's a hobby that got a lot of attention five years ago. 53178, engine failure, immediate return. After a mechanical problem in his vintage Ryan PT-22 forced him to make an emergency landing on a golf course, shattering his pelvis and his back. And you still flying? Oh, yeah, absolutely. I love to fly. I love being up in the air. I love the experience of the third dimension. Yeah. We're living in two dimensions down here. You get up there and you see... It's easier to get away from prying eyes up in the sky, too. Ford is by no means a recluse, but he is a private man, pragmatic to the core. You're not a big fan of doing red carpets and interviews like this. I, I understand the utility of it, and I, and I think it's important to be able to bring people's attention to uh, when you have a new product. So it's part of the business. It's part of the business. I think of the people that go to my movies more as customers than I do as fans. Fans feels kind of weird to me, but always has. He also knows his celebrity pales in comparison to the size of the world's problems. But at 77, this somewhat reluctant superstar hopes that he can at least help get people talking to one another again. You're a good Midwesterner. You don't really talk politics or religion much. But that's changed a wee bit. I think it's come to the point where we've got to start talking politics. But we've got to talk about it in a positive way. 
We've got to regain the middle ground. We're in these ideological enclaves. But the truth is in the middle. Progress is made in the middle. And you think we can get back there somehow? Be damn well better. It's Sunday morning on CBS, and here again is Jane Pauley. In recent weeks, a steady stream of survivors has traveled to Poland, survivors of one of history's most terrible chapters. We call Martha Teichner's report, For Those Who Come After, a remembrance of the Auschwitz death camp 75 years after its liberation. The pictures were an afterthought. Once Soviet soldiers had liberated Auschwitz in January 1945, they needed to show the world the horror they had discovered. So they dressed survivors back up in their uniforms and paraded them around for the cameras. Human beings, the Nazis reduced to numbers. The little boy on the right, B-1148, four years old then, His name is Michael Bornstein. Now 79, Uh, he lives in New Jersey. So here I am. And tells his story in schools. I was prisoner B-1148. I don't know if you can see this tattoo. That girl in the back row, nine years old. Number A-60989. Oh, I am right over here. Ruth Mushkis Weber from Michigan, 84 now. Now, did you, as a child there, understand what was happening at Auschwitz? The woman told me, they gave me the, uh, the number, that if I don't behave myself, I'll go up and smoke. Ruth Weber, Michael Bornstein, they were among the 200 or so survivors who went back last month to mark the 75th anniversary of the liberation of Auschwitz. Fewer and fewer of them left. They sat in a tent covering their ground zero, the spot where the railroad tracks ended, where the cattle cars filled with people stopped. The truth about the Holocaust must not die. This tribute to the living was also an elegy, a lament for the dead. 1.1 million people died at Auschwitz, most of them Jews. Mainly, they were herded into gas chambers and then incinerated in adjoining crematoria. Efficiently, as many as 6,000 a day. Auschwitz I was the camp with the famous gate. Its motto, work makes you free, a mockery to anyone who passed under it. Auschwitz, too, was its much bigger neighbor at Birkenau. This is what's left of the crematoria there. And this is where they dumped the ashes of the people they killed. You think you're prepared for what you'll see, the evidence of mass murder, but you're not. The children's shoes, what it says, look at this, this child... Couldn't be more than two or three years old. Cosmetics billionaire Ronald Lauder 
helped raise the $40 million it cost to open a conservation lab at Auschwitz. If it wasn't for a place like this, these shoes would have been, for this time, gone. Preserving Auschwitz has been Lauder's mission since his first visit in 1987. He is president of the World Jewish Congress. This is how it looked. Yeah. He won't say how much exactly, but admits he's personally given tens of millions of dollars so that these objects will bear witness long after survivors of Auschwitz are dead. The one word that symbolizes what happened to the Jewish people was the word Auschwitz. It's the largest cemetery in the world. There are a million people buried here. We are now three generations later, and what we see over and over again is that people forgot. According to a recent poll, fewer than half of U.S. adults know that six million Jews died in the Holocaust. A 2018 study found that more than six out of ten American millennials can't identify what Auschwitz is. To this day, do you have flashbacks? Are there things that haunt you? Yes. For Ruth Weber, the memory never goes away. You saw a German with a gun, and my mother would say to me when we passed by, don't look, because if somebody sees you looking, they'll shoot you. Her mother survived. Her father did not. Look at these children. Listen to what they did to stay safe. One of the places where we had made ourselves little places where we could squeeze into was the barrack. One of the barracks next to us had the skeletons. So you'd hide between the bodies? Yes. Protected by the women around her, She remembers their anguish whenever someone disappeared. And they would say, God Almighty, please, please see what is happening. Let somebody survive, especially the children. And this is what we were trying to do, is have a family and hopefully I'll live long enough to have grandchildren and to not forget that there was somebody up there that listened to all those voices and I was the one that survived. Ruth Weber did what those women asked. And on the top are my grandchildren. She has three children and five grandchildren who could only have been born because she did not die at Auschwitz. All right, everybody ready? Michael Bornstein has four children and 12 grandchildren. He celebrates the occasion survival brought him by raising a dented silver cup. The only family heirloom recovered after the war. And to us, it means the world. Laurie bornstein Wolf. It stands for life before and the life that comes. The last time Michael saw his brother Samuel and his father, Israel, was by those same railroad tracks the day the family arrived. They were sent one way to die. Michael, his mother Sophie, and grandmother Dora were sent another and managed to live. The memories I seem to remember is the smell 
the smell was absolutely terrible in Auschwitz. And later on, I find out that it's really the smell of burning flesh. For survivors, pictures from before are priceless. That's me when I was a year old. For survivors' children, inherited history can be a demanding legacy. If the next generation doesn't absorb the meaning and the importance of the Holocaust now, these memories are going to be dust. Debbie Bornstein Hollenstadt wrote a book with her father. Did you have any doubts that you weren't making it out alive? Definitely had doubts. They're telling of his story aimed at young adults. Today, I'm asking for your help. Let's make sure the world never forgets what happens when bigotry and hatred are ignored. Anti-Semitic incidents have spiked in the United States. They doubled between 2015 and 2018. In this climate of hate, Ronald Lauder's foundation flew 100 of the survivors to Poland for the anniversary. And we're doing this for the next generation, and for the generation after. It should never happen, and never again. David Marks is 91. He had never been back before. I arrived here by train from Hungary. And by the afternoon, I was all alone. 35 of my family were sent to the crematorium. His fiance Kathy Peck, talked him into going to make his peace. For Ruth Weber, the trip was mostly one last chance to mourn. It makes me feel like I'm walking in the ashes of the friends and people I didn't know. And to thank those women who prayed she would survive. Can you forgive the people who did this? What do you mean by forgive? Can you forgive somebody killing somebody else? Because I am continuing the life that others wanted me to. So forgive. I, I live with it. You okay, Dad? Yeah, I'm all right. Michael Bornstein's family clung to each other. I've never been here with one of my kids before. <laughs> and his daughter, Debbie, to her daughter, Katie. When people got here, they were like, it was chaos, and they did not know that they would never see their kids again. It's really sad because I know that here a lot of people would have just said goodbye, and that would be forever. For Lori Bornstein Wolf, life is not a given. In a way, I feel like my kids are really lucky, and they should feel really lucky because we shouldn't be here, right? On the other hand, they do have a big responsibility. They should know this burden. In 1939, before the Holocaust, there were 16.5 million Jews in the world. Now, just under 15 million. Still, 75 years after Auschwitz was liberated. Outside the only crematorium still standing, Three generations of Bornsteins prayed together for those they lost and everyone else who died here. Amen. A memorial and a name.
a place to remember the millions who perished in the Holocaust. Seth Doan reports from Israel. Cut into a Jerusalem hillside is a striking memorial to an unthinkable past. Part museum, part archive, it's called Yad Vashem, which in Hebrew means a memorial and a name. More than a million visitors come here each year trying to comprehend the magnitude of the Holocaust. I didn't think that a building, business as usual, a museum with all the trimmings of architecture is the right place to tell the story of the Holocaust. I wanted it to feel like it's part of the earth. Famed architect Moshe Safdie took us around this museum. Touch it. Which he designed with few embellishments. I just wanted the material that was basic, that it has no, it's just structure. He sets a reflective tone with simple lines, austere concrete, and the careful use of light. And I hope that the architecture and the sequence of spaces and the quality of the light make that experience of getting all this information, uh, which is so difficult to take in, something that stays with you forever. A memorial and a name. You have all of these pictures right when you come in your house, right at your front door. Absolutely, absolutely. 84-year-old Rena Quint barely remembers what was before the Holocaust. What's followed is everywhere in her Jerusalem apartment. I love these pictures. Each one of them represents part of my life. Except there's a big part missing, her childhood. There's not a single photo of her mother, father, or brothers who were all killed. I don't remember what my brothers looked like. I don't really remember playing with them. How about your parents? I don't remember them either. You can't visualize their faces? No. I can't, I can't, I can't. No. She was just three when war broke out and wound up at the work camp Bergen-Belsen. She survived pretending to be a boy to get work until British troops liberated the camp in 1945. What's this? This is my birth certificate. Yad Vashem helped her to uncover files and paperwork, and slowly she began piecing together her past. This is a prenuptial agreement. Dry documents provide a glimpse of what was. This was what your mother owned, and it's one of the few things you know about her. That's right. I know she had furniture, but I don't know what she looks like. This is called a page of testimony. Testimonials to those who perished, a vital part of Yad Vashem's 70-plus-year-old mission. This is my brother. Quint filled out four, with name, age, and circumstance of death. My mother and brothers were put into the gas chambers. My father, I don't know when, where, how. I have no idea what he died. The pages of testimony are sort of They're buried on paper, at least. Millions who perished, buried on paper, housed in the museum's Hall of Names. This is the whole idea behind Yad Vashem, behind the whole institution, to commemorate and to do it on the level of a human being. 
Heim Gertner is the archive director. He showed us the black binders filled with more than four million of those testimonies. It will take us a lot of time, but we will uh, do our best efforts to locate all the names as much as we can. All of those empty shelves are for the some two million victims yet to be named. You are traveling in an unknown black hole in your own memory, like in the uh, case of uh, Rina Quint, and uh, you find here something, here something, then we copy some document there. So we have a process of, uh, of recovering histories here. Gertner oversees a research staff of more than 100 who collect and preserve documents and stories in 60 languages from neighbors, from friends, from towns across Europe. It's a very humiliating card. because These prisoner cards filled out by Nazis were discovered in an attic. Um, and you have the whole description, uh, height, color of hair, size of nose, things like that. It's very humiliating. Sometimes all that's left of a life is a note, drawing or signature. Thank you. At 88, Bert Elizon still volunteers here every day. During the Holocaust, she pretended to be Christian. Of all of the parts of this exhibit, this is the most meaningful. Yeah, because for me it's a symbol. She took us to the exhibit that matters most to her. What does this bicycle symbolize for you? It symbolizes the goodness. People who were ready to give their lives in order to help. It was used by a French woman who rode it to check on and protect Jewish kids. A reminder that while humans carried out this atrocity, humans also helped save lives. I owe her my life, and I don't forget. And in part, it's why I'm here. Because I'm alive, and I have to tell why and how. I'm doing it now because I think it's important. Survivors, including Rena Quint, told us sharing their story and documenting the past is not so much a choice but a duty. If I had not survived, I wouldn't have put in my mother's, father's, and brother's names. And there are families where nobody survived. In the Hall of Names, the pictures soar skyward. Yad Vashem, an archive, a tombstone, where victims of some of history's horrors are named and remembered. What's the lure of Bernie Sanders for America's Young? Some thoughts from Time Magazine national correspondent Charlotte Alter, author of the new book, The Ones We've Been Waiting For. After two strong showings by Bernie Sanders in the last two weeks, many of you may be wondering why so many young people are enthralled with the 78-year-old socialist. Here's the thing. Baby boomers who grew up during the Cold War were taught that socialism led to communism and communism threatened American freedom. When they think of socialism, they think of the Soviet Union with its gulags and bad economy. But the millennials who support Sanders or Warren didn't grow up with that history. Mr. Gorbachev teared down this wall. The oldest of them turned eight the year the Berlin Wall fell. To many of them, socialism means universal health care, child care, and free college, like in many parts of Europe. In fact, for many people my age, it's runaway capitalism, 
not creeping socialism that's had the worst impact on our lives. Millennials came of age during the 2008 financial crisis. They're burdened by soaring college debt and can't afford many of the things their parents took for granted, like owning homes or cars. They're confronting a climate crisis that will leave parts of the world uninhabitable for their children. That's why they're tilting to the left. I'm not arguing in favor of democratic socialism. I'm a journalist, not an activist. But I do think that many Americans fundamentally misunderstand the trend. When millennials say they're socialists, they mean they want to elect leaders who will address the affordability crisis in housing, health care, child care, and college tuition, and move aggressively on climate. And yes, they want higher taxes on the wealthy to pay for it. It used to be that the American government was actually ambitious about solving social problems. The progressives started the minimum wage and the income tax and ended child labor. Supported by his New Deal advisors, the FDR established Social Security and put millions of people to work building roads, bridges, and schools. LBJ enacted Medicare for the elderly and Medicaid for the poor. We are the only major country on earth not to guarantee health care to all. Right or wrong, those big structural changes Bernie Sanders and Elizabeth Warren talk about so much are just as American as any of those other bold reforms in our history. You may not like what they're asking for, but at least these progressives are trying to meet big challenges with big ideas for a better world. I'm Jane Pauley. Thank you for listening. And please join us again next Sunday morning. If you like CBS Sunday Morning with Jane Pauley, you can listen early and ad-free right now by joining Wondery Plus in the Wondery app or on Apple Podcasts. Prime members can listen ad-free on Amazon Music. Before you go, tell us about yourself by filling out a short survey at wondery.com survey.